today I'm here with one of my old classmates, John. Um, myself and John served in the Defence Forces and he's now the Digital Marketing Manager for IT.ie. That's correct, that's correct. And yeah. thanks very much, Connor. I'm delighted to, to, to join you here today. I haven't seen you since uh, since our time in, in, in Carlo in college and, and all the stresses that it brought, but hasn't done you too bad. You're looking, you're looking well and you're, and, you're, and you're doing very well and, uh, and I'm delighted to hear. So uh, please walk away, ask whatever questions you want. Yeah. And I'm delighted now to just sit here and chat with you about, I suppose, some the, the Defence Forces and 27 years of my life I spent there. So yeah. yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, you're in for 27 years now, you're out. A couple of years, are you? Uh, September 2021, I retired. Or the, yeah. the, the transition, I suppose. It's a strange one when we say retire because people look at you and go, you know, you know, you know. I, well, I'm, I'm advanced in age. I'm not quite yeah. that old yet. So <laughs> when people look at you, they go, you're retired. They say, well, I suppose you could say we transitioned to a new stage of my professional life. Yeah, definitely. And do you miss it now? or Do I miss it? Them? Yes, I do miss yeah. it. Um, to the point that I miss the camaraderie of yeah. the, 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 the men and women I served in the Defence Forces. Yeah. This, it's, it's a unique relationship you have when you're in the defence forces because when you you know you're doing your recruit training or your NCO training so you're in kind of residential training where for for months at a time you're with all these men and women and then when you go overseas you're in a high stress environment so you develop very uh, strong relationships strong bonds and there's a a very high level of trust so while I don't miss the organisation in the sense that I'm very happy with my decision to leave. Yeah. I certainly miss that element of it. I miss that yeah. that uh, that bond that you would, that we had with the people the the people I served with. Yeah, it's very different, I suppose, from like the culture. I suppose when you're in the defence yeah. forces to when you leave, it's very different. And um, yeah, so you were there for 27 years. What first prompted you to like join the defence forces? Okay, well, uh, I suppose it's it's a bit cliche, but you know the whole <laughs> adventure, you know, and yeah. excitement and travel the world and see new things, and and, and that did 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 excite me. Um, I I was in the FCA. I joined when I was okay. 14 or 15. Jeez. You could you could get away with that then. <laughs> you you find out. But I remember even being in the FCA and looking at the PDF guys, the Permanent Defence Forces guys, and you say, oh, you know, I want to be them one day, and I really yeah. want you. See, you, you looked up to them, they were, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're looking at them in awe, and this is what you want it to be. And so the FCA <clears throat> at the time, I think, that, you know, it's the reserves now, but the FCA at the time was a great, um, <clears throat> I suppose, initiation into the, the, the culture of, of the Defence Forces. Yeah. The one thing I always, I take back, and I was only thinking about the FCA the other day, and... I was only a kid, but I do remember I was—I had a terrible, terrible appetite. I didn't like a lot of the food the army cooked, and that didn't necessarily change in twenty-seven years. I was some fantastic cooks, but and then so you initially joined then the permanent. What was the was that then the main decision of like why you decided to join the main? The it was. I, I was interested in in interesting enough when I was I suppose grown up as a as a teenager. Yeah. There was two things I wanted to be it was either a soldier or a journalist. Two very contrasting things and I even did a small bit of work in a local paper in Fingless to Fingless Forum and did a little bit of journal and I really enjoyed it yeah. but the opportunity came up to join the Defence Forces um, I didn't think I'd get in because I had long hair um, <laughs> even when I was in the FCA I used to tie it up so under the berry it was this okay. whole thing of you keep it under your berry yeah. and upset a few people so look I went for it I was successful and um, they gave me a ridiculously tight haircut and yeah. my kind of argument was 
I, I need to have some reason for this haircut. So being a soldier was one of those. Uh, but yeah, no, look, I was very lucky I got in and uh, I've had 27 fantastic years in the organisation. And did you, jo- did you show up on day one, like with the long hair? I, I oh. cut it. Okay. I cut it shorter. Okay. Shorter. And it's it's like something you see in the movies. They yeah. genuinely had a guy waiting <laughs> and he shaved the head and it looked ridiculous. This it wasn't trendy then. It has since become trendy to have yeah. that haircut. But um, yeah, I turned up with what I thought was short hair, bearing in mind that hair down to here, so <laughs> having this bit of a flop, and it looked ridiculous. I yeah. thought I was cool at the time, but looking back at photographs, mm-hmm. my wife, who was my girlfriend then, was looks at me and goes, you looked absolutely <laughs> ridiculous with a pink bobbin in your hair, but yeah. you know, it, you know, I was into my Smiths and my alternative music and thought that was the scene. Yeah, I remember showing up on, uh, I think, day one, and uh, going into the barbers, and there was a couple of lads ahead of me or whatever, and uh, he says, oh, like, what do you want? This guy had, like, a mother, I think it was. And he goes, oh, what do you want? He goes, yeah, two on the sides, one straight through the middle. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no fade or anything like that. They have there's no else. messing around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, it was gone. Um, grand. And then, so, you're in now. Um, do you remember a crew training? You had the old green uniform, did you? Or oh, God, the old green uniform. With it. Was it called the old pattern yeah. webbing that we used to wear? Uh, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the old uniform. I, funny enough, I, I preferred the old combats over the DPMs. Really? I actually thought they fit better because you used to tuck in the short and they wear it out. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, re- I remember crew training. I, I trained in Gormanstown. Joined the 11th of April in 1994. I remember it very well. I remember walking in the gates and the, the massive... Experience life change that happened almost immediately. Yeah. But look, I, 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 it was extremely hard, but I loved it. I really loved yeah. it and got, made friends there and bonds there that that lasted till today. Yeah, you tried Gormstown, wasn't you trying? Gormstown, yeah. And how many? Do you remember like how many started with you and how many finished? I think it was three platoons, about one hundred and ten, maybe in and around one hundred and ten. Right. Um, there was, a, yeah, the attrition rate was reasonably high. A good few, yeah. of course, did pull out through varying reasons injury it just wasn't for them or, or whatever the case is yeah. but uh, yeah, a good cohort uh, completed the training uh, I'd say I, I couldn't be sure maybe 70-80% probably finished it yeah oh that's not bad then. no it's not I know things have uh, times have changed and ideas have changed but a lot of people then they really joined because they really wanted to be part of it yeah you know it was an adventure we were moving in and we were kind of moving into that Celtic Tiger era, so a lot of people were going into the to the high-paying jobs then, and they wanted you know the bonuses. But I think people at then who joined really wanted to be part of the organisation. Yeah. It wasn't simply that they wanted a job. There was opportunities there, and we all know there's been ups and downs in, in yeah. that market. But I think people who joined then, the people who joined with me, really want to be part of the organisation. Okay, that's good. And then, did, would you have had like the Steyr or the FM back then? Steyr. Oh, Steyr, okay, so yeah, no, during my FCA days we had the, yeah. the Gustav and, and the FM, but no, right. the, yeah, the Steyr was fairly new, I suppose, uh, it was almost like space-aged weapon at the time, <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, we trained on the Steyr, yeah. Good hour level Steyr. It still is, yes. Yeah. And then, in ter- you would have had like the boots, you would have had to stay up all hours pulling the boots. Ah, <laughs> stop, yeah. The, uh, the tricks of the trade that you learn in recruit training, because yeah, yeah. it's relentless, isn't it? You, you, you go to bed very late after doing all your training and lectures throughout the day then of course you're, you're polishing floors you're getting your boots ready you're, you're learning the whole skills of, of spit shining and getting the creases in the uniform and then we all develop then I think at one point we start we were at a stage where because bed blocks then we didn't get duvets so you had to yeah, the same build a bed block and that's 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 an art form in itself so i think what <laughs> we used to do we we lay we'd get the bed block made you'd lay out your kid on the bed right. and quite often you'd sleep on the floor 
because you wanted everything ready so you get you're only getting maybe five hours sleep if you're lucky so you're trying to get the maximum sleep so you'd have stuff ready i'm not saying we did that every night but when you do it as a kid inspection you tended to have that done yeah, yeah sure it was done and then so is that your like highlights and um, from training for yourself um highlights from training um we did a, I can't remember what exactly it was. We did a couple of charity events. A lot of recruit platoons do yeah. it. But I remember running from Gormanstown up to Drogheda. And I think we did it there and back. And it was for a, but I, I, that, was a, that was before we'd done the whole um, exercise phase. Yeah. So that was like that kind of running in block and the, yeah. the singing the songs and the yeah, stuff, you know, we'd all, we'd all seen. We'd watched all the, 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 the movies and all the Americans singing the songs <laughs> marching. So, yeah, no, I loved it. I, I loved the the level of fitness it got it, yeah, it got you to because it's it's, it's unparalleled and you, to be honest I've never been able to attain to, to attain it since <laughs> I don't think I've ever been able to fit myself no um, but then you would have spent much time in the sea in Gorman would you oh yeah the sea that, <laughs> that, the that was the, that was the downside obviously yeah. because. Uh, Kevin Thornton fantastic man but ne- didn't particularly love him at the time when he was running us <laughs> around but uh, Kevin Thornton was the guy who used to do a lot of our PTs and okay. in the sand and running around the airfield in Gormanstown and uh, yeah we did and then of course you know what's the point in having a lot of water if you can't throw 30 or 40 lads and ladies into it so yeah we spent a lot of time there as well it's definitely like a harsh place to train like yeah, it's a great training environment, yeah. but it's harsh because uh, they're training you for what potential yeah, what's you might be, the situations you might be in. So yeah. it has to be harsh. It has to be robust. Um, it, it, you know, it's it, it, it's not for everybody, and, no, and that's absolutely fine. But I do think there's an element of you know breaking you down and building you up. Yeah. And when done right, it's it's absolutely the right way to do it. Yeah, uh, right. I know there's, there's people argue about certain you know situations where people do it do it wrong but I think in general you do have to break people down and build them up and it builds yeah. it builds not only your fitness it builds your character your integrity and I think you know not only does that assist you in the defence force it, it helps you in life yeah definitely and it builds cohesion as well yeah of course really. and so you're in training six months seven months eight months was it um, like I think the initial training is, is god I can't even remember now it's because you do your initial recruit training and then, for, two, and then, then two to three star we went up to Monaghan is where okay. I was assigned 29 battalion and I, and I did that phase of the training up there but it's it's almost continuous because you literally go from yeah, one to the dealer you think it's going to be the, the, that phase is going to be easier and you realise it's actually <laughs> it's not just it's just exactly the same yeah. Yeah. Um, and then right, so you're out training how many years were you in there before you joined the military police sorry and so I yeah so I went up to Monaghan in uh, 94 after I finished my initial training and then in 1997 um, I was accepted as a probationer on the military police course and um, that was up in that was in in uh, Dakota and uh, yeah so, so from 1997 then I became a an NCO in the, the military police and immediately actually and uh, no I had served overseas when I was in the infantry in, in Lebanon in, in the 70 78 infantry battalion oh, okay. and then uh, immediately after probationers training I went to Bosnia as a young uh, MP probationer. What's the process of like I know there's different uh, promotional routes someone mm-hmm. can go down. What's the what's the avenue I suppose for an MP? Like what's involved in becoming an MP? Okay, well an MP, uh, the MP probationers course, there's to say now it's 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 quite academic in this because of course you you have to learn a lot about uh, law because yeah. you need to know about the different uh, the different um, uh, legal acts about the Defence Act. Yeah. Uh, you need to understand about um, you know crime, how to process a crime scene, how to interview, but also you still have to do a lot of the military elements. This is a tactical phase because you have a field element, of course, when you when you do tactical, tactical yeah. training, because when the military go on any large scale exercises, 
the military police are involved in movements, they're involved in setting up tactical command posts. So yeah, so there's, there's, it's, it's, it will be different than a typical NCO course. course, although I think they've brought more of that into the newer phases of it. In fact, I think a lot of guys have to do the, the almost the infantry phase before they go into that, but it, certainly in my day, it was, it was more academic, more classroom based. Yeah. And the, I think the, once you're an MP then you wear the red berets. You wear the red beret and then you wear the peak cap with the, with the red band around it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, that day only came in, I think not many years before I became an MP, the, the, the red berets came in prior, prior to that, it was just, it was, it was just, it was the standard black beret, but internationally, a lot of international police and military police forces would red, red, red beret. So it, it was an obvious transition. And would you what kind of courses then? Once you're qualified as a, an MP and promoted into the rank of corporal, I think it was. initially it's corporal. Yes, yeah. exactly. So um, I would have, there's a lot of courses open to yeah. the military police. Uh, primarily, a lot of the courses you do because I spent a few a, a lot of my time in the investigation section. I was, I was a crime reader, so I was kind of responsible for, I suppose, collating uh, reports and evidence for yeah. eventual forward to the relevant authorities and. So I would have I would have done the, an investigation course, and an investigation course is what what qualifies you to be, I suppose, with the police equivalent of being a detective. So yeah. you know you kind of wear your civilian clothes, you, you deal with more, uh, I suppose, more high end uh, crime, and yeah. plus you, you learn at a higher level how to properly process a crime scene. You learn how proper, you know, again, higher level interview techniques. So you, you learn the full process of an investigation, yeah. the collection of evidence, the interviewing, and of course how to. Uh, Submit a report again onto to higher authority to make you know final decisions on whether to move forward, prosecute, whatever whatever it is decided. But that was quite an interesting job. It, it, well, it was. It was actually interesting. The, like the, the investigation course is fantastic, and the, the instructors yeah. in the Cura and um, you know the the, the the next to none. There, uh, a lot of it is in in conjunction with Gardaí, and I know guys who go on and do the 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 SOCO, like the CSI type course do it directly with the Garda Shiokana, but we'd have Gardi coming in to assist in certain lectures. In front of, I, the drugs course I would have done would have had a, a large involvement with Angarda Shiokana and that. Then we do we do photography. So a lot of these things lead into the, the overall role of an investigator. So you need photography, you need to understand drugs, you know, and how to investigate drugs. And of course then, you need to understand all about crime scenes, processing, interviewing, and so it's it, it's a process. So it's a number of courses you'll have to do over a period of time, and then there's a lot of other courses you within the MPs or any you have the the administrative courses that you would do in yeah. the army, and of course most of us, as well as working in our particular operational units, will spend time in offices. We do, we spend a yeah, lot of time. Definitely. It's not something we we think we would do, but we all end up becoming office admins, office managers as yeah, well over a time. Yeah. It's good that way. And then, so you're in the MPs doing the investigation course. How long you moved into yours then for your different? Yeah, so I, um, in 2000 and 2005, I think it was, I was uh, approached and asked would I be interested. I had done a bit of kind of relief work in the RS. There's, yeah. In the RS, just to explain, in the RS, you have the senior aide camp who's a full colonel. Yeah. Then you have two commandants and a captain who are the other officer aide camps, but all yeah. aide camps. And then you have two NCOs, you have a sergeant and a corporal. So I was approached, the corporate that was there at the time was retiring, okay. and I was approached and asked would I be interested, and I I was, it was you know, I'd been there on, a, on and off, and it was a fantastic place to be. So so I started in the Oris in 2005 uh, as the NCO corporal, however I'd fin completed my standard uh, course prior to entering the Oris, so two years later I was promoted to sergeant. Okay. The initial plan was for me to return to the MPs, but 
it was the powers to be and obviously in with consultation myself it was eventually decided that I would stay in the Oris okay. the plan was to stay there for three to five years and I was there for 17 years yeah jeez yeah. <laughs> when you're in the Oris right so like what is your actual job as like an aide de camp okay so um, there's the I suppose the aide de camp is the aide de camp is the a, a military advisor to the president and yeah. certainly the colonel and the senior officers would, would handle that more so than, than the NCOs but yeah. the NCO still has to be in a, in a position to directly brief the president which which is the case yeah. you're you, you're given a lot of responsibility there's a lot of trust in you there it's yeah. um, and the relationship between the officers and the nco is, is i'm not saying it's different than the barrack environment but because of the small nature of the team it's yeah. more i suppose it's more intimate so we develop very strong relationships strong bonds in fact strong friendships regardless yeah. of ranks in the rs and we rely on each other very heavily so a lot of my role would have been it, it's very front of house PR so we're yeah. dealing directly with the public so when the president would have people in he would he would often turn around and say John do you mind uh, you know would you mind giving the group a tour around the house so yeah. you, you learn uh, you know have to give a historical tour which is actually fascinating yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. it's, it's a fascinating place a fascinating history and I really enjoyed engaging with people one to one it was yeah. you know having a bit of banter having a bit of laugh and you'll always find a few characters in every group and also then there's the the I suppose the MC element of it, if you want to say. So we, yeah. the NCOs, would do a lot of the the MCing of the different events. Okay. And uh, there are times they get professional MCs in, but I suppose we're cheaper, so we, we were used to fair <laughs> bit. So, but we would do a lot of the announcements. So we, you know, when the president getting announced into the room, we would do it. Yeah. And some of the high profile events, I know uh, now King Charles, of course, Prince Charles came over a few years ago. I remember I I was doing the announcements and. Interestingly, someone showed me, it was an article about it in the Times, and the, the journalist described the person doing the announcement as the man with a DJ sounding mid-Atlantic accent. I didn't have a clue what mid-Atlantic was until yeah. I looked it up and I found out, okay, I'm putting on a fake voice, basically, yeah. But I suppose you do that, you know, yeah, the yeah. Oris voice comes down you. But look, it, it, you know, I, I enjoyed it. it. It was incredible for my confidence. Um, uh, I'm not going to say I was the most confident guy going into it, yeah. but it builds your confidence. You're standing there, you're you're there with world leaders. So so in the Oris, I got, you know, I got to meet world leaders and history makers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been lucky and, I'm, I, you know, I'm... I'm kind of name dropping, but it is. I got to yeah. meet. No, I got to I meet actually, yeah, presidents. Famous person. Well, I, 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 I shook hands with President Obama. Oh, I met really? President Biden. He wasn't President then, but I met President Biden, the Pope, yeah. uh, the Queen. Um, the, you know, more, every yeah, any world leader that's come, they tend to go to the Oris, and you know the the NCOs would be a, a, a strong part of that. And uh, I was very lucky. I got, I got to see people that you know, I, I say people that have. have created history a formed history and uh, yeah. you know it's 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 eye opening to see them in some ways especially when the cameras are off and you see them as normal as people, normal people because quite often when the whole you're in a room with the, these people and they're talking to you they're just talking to you one to one and yeah. uh, like I, I remember people were asking me there was a bit of controversy when the Queen was coming to visit and you know what she's like and I said she was actually lovely she was very polite she acknowledged everybody and I was brought up with the simple you know have manners and treat people with respect yeah. and um, you know the, the, the Queen and many others have met just just simple manners and they just you're just another person and they just speak to you like another person yeah, yeah. so I so I, you know it's, it's great kind of eye opener when you some of these people that you've seen over the years on telly and that these you know how would you describe them? They're, they're, they're you know, they're, they're just they carry they're big figures, and yeah. but when you actually get to speak to them, you they're, they're just people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they're big jobs, but they're, they're just people. So, so that was a, a, a key element of it. 
And obviously we'd, we'd work closely with Ngardi Shea Khan in relation to the security. The Gardaí are responsible for the security of the president, but of course we work in, in very closely with them. So we have a very strong relationship yeah. with Ngardi Shea Khan, both the uniform service and the, the special detective unit who will be responsible for the, the protection of the president. Well, you're in the RS then. Um, you ever have a cup of tea with the president? Uh, you ever have a cup of tea basis? Uh, no, no, never on a first name basis. And that's simply something I would myself, regardless yeah. of what anyone would say, I would insist on because the president's a symbol. It's it's it doesn't matter who's in the chair. The president is a symbol. It's it's the uh, you know it's 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 enshrined in our constitution. So yeah. you should give. It's it's similar to your own organisation. It doesn't matter yeah. whether you like the person has a particular rank. Sorry. You should respect the rank. So I yeah. very much respect the president. I've been very lucky to work with both President Mary McAleese and President Higgins. Yeah. I have to say, um, personally, I think uh, fantastic presidents. Both of them. Yeah. treated me personally with great respect um, and you're saying having tea I did actually have tea with both of them okay. uh, before I got married in 2011 President McAleese invited um, my now wife and yeah. my daughter our daughter in and we sat down and had tea with the President oh, and really? President Higgins um, just after I retired ha- um, hosted lunch for me at the Aris, um, which was a, an incredible honour yeah, so brilliant. and uh, so yeah it, we didn't sit down and have tea and coffee and crumpets yeah. on a daily basis you but, but uh, yeah normally we're the guy that's you know ushering people around who are in to, in to see the president but yeah I was very lucky and uh, I think both of them served uh, served uh, served this nation incredibly well. Yeah, they have both very different people, very different agendas. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, I finished up with President Higgins, and President Higgins is still serving. And uh, I've great respect for him. I've great respect for the work he does uh, yeah. in President, not just here. And obviously, he has great compassion for the issues here and obviously uh, uh, around the world. Yeah, I think I think he's actually a brilliant president. He represents Ireland really well. It's oh, he does. He, he does. He's been upstage to many times by the dogs yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but uh, everyone everyone loves everyone the dogs, loves the dogs and poor, yeah. and poor sadly sadly poor Broad passed away recently he was fantastic great character but no no he, he is he's done the nation proud um, uh, a lot of people questioning uh, you know are you too old to do anything and I think he's proved you never are you yeah. never are I think his mind, his academic mind is incredible, but he's got a great personality, great sense of humour as well. I always feared, you know, um, when I was going to be working with someone that has such a, you know, a, a great academic mind that I'd, you know, I wouldn't be able to, you know, converse with him. Yeah. But he just, he, he talks to everyone as, you know, on, on a level. Yeah. In fact, one of the most fascinating things I've seen was early in his presidency, a group of students came in and um, they, were, they were in awe of him. They were now. He had been a lecturer, of course. <clears throat> just listening to him talk passionately about the issues that he was passionate about, yeah. it was just fascinating to watch that engagement. And I have to say, I, it was it was humbling. Yeah, brilliant. And then, so after like, during your time at Yorks, then that's would that would have been the time when you're in college, then in Carlow myself. Yeah. So uh, I suppose I. Um, you're thinking of an exit plan, I, It was exactly what it was. I, I, I came to a point when, I suppose, when I hit, hit 40, yeah. uh, this is where you're supposed to say, no, you're not 40. No, no he's not yet, <laughs> not yet. When I hit 40, 10 years ago, but when I, hit, when I hit 40, I kind of made the decision then that I needed to start planning. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest mistake you can make is assume that it's just going to happen for you. I think you do need to plan. Yeah. Um, start thinking of, what you've done and how that will benefit you when you when you get out of the organisation. So I made a, a decision to start planning, and I had been talking to somebody who had done um, a, one of the higher diplomas in in in, in IT Carlo, yeah. and I seen there was one upcoming, and 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 it was in business management. So 
I put my name forward. I was lucky enough to be accepted. And that was my first kind of inroad to that kind of academic world because in the military you're training all the time, but it's, it, it's very different. You're in the whole military environment and it just be, it's ingrained into you because we're always training. Regardless of you doing a course, yeah. mili- military training is it's continuous. We talk now about lifelong learning. In the military, that's exactly what you're doing all the time. Yeah. But um, so I was nervous going into it. I didn't know if I was going to be very academic. I wasn't particularly good in school and through no fault of any teachers, I just didn't put the effort in. Yeah. As, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us when we're young and immature do. So I, I really, I kind of fell into that academic role. I enjoyed it. It was difficult. I enjoyed it. I, we were lucky enough that I suppose to our class, while it was entirely run by civilians and entirely you know tutored by civilians we were lucky that we were all military so we had that kind of bonds that the military have and that kind of barrack room bond that we could bring into the classroom so after that um, after I finished in IT Carlo I I did better than I expected myself and then I decided that I wanted to maybe look even further again so I looked at different programs and then I came across a master's degree in digital marketing at DCU um, and it was an applied one, so it wasn't purely academic based. It wasn't purely okay. do a test and pass. So you, it was actually based on projects you did, and obviously right. a lot of academic le- yeah. elements and you have final projects. But I decided I would go for that. I had to do an interview with the uh, the, the the lead professor, Theo Lin, and uh, I was successful. In fact, he told me at the time, he says you're the first military guy to go for this course. So oh, really? he says, I'm kind of taking a chance on you. But it's interesting. He, <laughs> he, like, he actually taught, you know, that's a challenge. He's, yeah. you know, someone from a very different background. So it's really kind of gone totally left the field from what, you know, the normal transition would be. So, yeah, yeah so I did, the, it was a two-year uh, program. Uh, it was extremely challenging, of course. I think over two years and maybe Christmas Day is the only day you weren't doing something related to it but yeah. you have to you have to be committed and even if you recall in Carlo the work we had to put in and yeah. it, it, it was it was extreme but I, I think the work ethic of the military is something that we have it's it's yeah. something that's built into us Definitely. we we relish challenges yeah. we, we genuinely relish challenges and when you take on any challenge you give it 100% there's one thing I always um, and something even my own father used to say but I think I learned a lot from the military is regardless of what role you do you should do it 100% yeah. If you don't think you're getting the correct compensation for it, well, that's up for you to, to, to fight for that. But it doesn't matter. Once you agree to do something, you should do it 100%. So I always took that kind of that mindset into the education side of it. So did the, uh, the, the Masters in DCU. Uh, I loved it. I yeah. found it very challenging, but I did love it. Uh, wasn't upset when it was over just <laughs> to get that bit of freedom yeah. back. And uh, yeah, so it was that's uh, so I did those, and it's at a point then that it's use it or lose it. It was a technical skill, yeah. so I had to start using it. I was lucky enough um, that I was doing a small bit of, I was doing part-time work with IT.ie, yeah. and I can talk about that actually a bit more, but I was doing a little bit of work with them and helping Eamon to, dev- to grow the company a little. Yeah. And it, in fairness, it was actually Eamon who had actually suggested the digital marketing side for me. Oh. So I went on, I did it, and shortly after I'd finished, uh, I was looking at, what opportunities were out there for me and Eamon came and I suppose gave me an offer I couldn't refuse so uh, and I I was greatly appreciative of it so I was lucky in many that I didn't have to you know go exploring it but I had been doing the groundwork I knew it was a lot of opportunity out there the challenge for me was I was was older than a lot of people that were doing it 
Yeah. In fact, it, when I was in college, I was easily double the age of anyone else in yeah. the class. Did you have to go during the day, or was it an even course? It was, or was it self study. Like? It was it was um, a mixture. It was okay. a mixture. It was kind of two days a week. But with the masters, it's fairly self-directed. Yeah. So you get you know instruction, but you 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 you're yeah. supposed to have a level that you can self-direct. Uh, and I was very lucky because um, my my superiors in in the RS, within the military as a whole, but in the yeah. RS where I was, were very uh, obliging to me and gave me a lot of support, both with uh, Car- with Carlo IT and in DCU. So I was given that flexibility and the support to allow me to do, and I think that's very important. Yeah. And I think largely within the organisation, the military, I think I think most cases the the guys are given the support to pursue other other you know academic yeah co- definitely like even myself like my first degree um i was in dbs three nights a week mm-hmm. and uh you know had to write a letter or whatever explain what i wanted to do and uh, everyone like spurred me on i got like didn't get put on duties yeah uh, those three nights and pay back obviously with a saturday duty three times oh yeah no no always pay back but uh, yeah like it's definitely there definitely uh there's definitely like compromise um at the external education and it wasn't like oh why are you doing that degree or whatever everyone was kind of rooting for you to yeah. get it done which is brilliant you don't really you wouldn't really get that outside like, no you don't and i agree with you i think i think uh, i can't talk about how the organization was many years ago and yeah. it was a different organization but i think the organization of today i while it's it's a it's a two-tier system of the commission and non-commissioned i think there's a great blend there and i think there's a lot of support there's I think commissioned officers, for instance, don't feel threatened by non-commissioned officers pursuing education. And I'm not saying it's true, but I remember arguments in the past where people would say that there was that threat there. I don't think so. I think people generally are intelligent, people in the military intelligent, because you wouldn't survive without a level of intelligence. So it makes sense for them to pursue whether, and it doesn't have to be an academic degree, just for the training. You yeah. should continually train, regardless of what it is. Yeah. I and mean, I don't think it has to be, uh, you know, a degree. Uh, well, it, it'll certainly help you. And I think sometimes yeah. maybe may too much onus on degrees rather than practical skills as well. Yeah. I think like the the army itself though is actually probably way more academic than people think oh, itself. Like absolutely. even like there's a lot of classroom-based learning. It's even though it's recruit training, there might be a bit of roaring and shouting or whatever like during the day when you're in training initially but it is very classroom based and classroom led and that's what I think gives us an advantage um, when we go into these courses um, I genuinely thought I was at a massive disadvantage going in to do this particular DCU with the young students Yeah. and I remember one thing actually um, the professor said um, he was talking to the class and he says he used to always use me for an example simply because I was similar age to him and he said he says see John there he jumps to conclusions and I was like <laughs> I said what what have I done and he says no let me explain he says he can because he's had experiences in the army and in life that you haven't Yeah. so he can go from step one to step five but you can't you need to do step two three four and five but through his experiences through the, 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 my army life we'd done those steps yeah. so we, we were Good able to so and so uh, we're okay in the end I, t- I thought it was another <laughs> it was a dig at me but it made sense and I think that's yeah. where a lot of guys in the military the, the training we've done that continuous and it is academic training that we yeah. do in the military it, it equips you perfectly well and so you will go in and I was petrified but very quickly I realised I'm on par with these guys yeah. I, I'm not saying I was better than them yeah. maybe in some cases I was in some cases I wasn't but I was easily able to keep up with the, the young people who were I suppose living in the digital world that I necessarily didn't grow up in yeah but yeah and I remember that you always had an interest though in the digital marketing sort of things even from when you were in Carlo did you? I, I was a bit of a, a techie guy. I always yeah. enjoyed the, you know that tech side and as, as I said many years ago um, even as a 
teenage or early adults. I worked for the, the Fingless Forum and uh, the journalism. So content is something I was interested. So okay. digital marketing is very much content creation. It's, yeah. you know, there's obviously the technical side of it, but at the end, of it, a lot of it is storytelling. It's storytelling, it's storytelling around the brand, around you know a situation with cybersecurity being the big one at the moment. But yeah, it is storytelling, it's creating content and it's 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 you know it's delivering delivering a message. So I enjoy the creative side of it. Yeah. And so yeah, I think that's something I always had an interest in. Okay. Um, and I probably just needed maybe a little bit of push which I got from Eamon at the time to maybe to move in that direction. Yeah, and so you're, you left then shortly after you finished the Masters, did you? Uh, yeah, I finished the Masters, was it 19 or 20? But I left about 12 months later. Yeah. I, I gave my commanding officer a kind of about five months uh, okay. notice because we had to obviously go on the search for and find find a replacement for, for for me in the RS. So I gave them, I think, ample time to, to, to do that and then for me to train in someone to, to replace me. So, yeah, so I it took, I didn't just jump. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy decision. Yeah. Uh, turns out it was, the transition was easier than expected, but it, it's, when you, your whole adult life is spent, in my case, in the military, it's yeah. it's not an easy decision. It's, I loved the military. I'm not, I don't have a negative word to say about it, yeah. but it was time. Yeah. You know, it was, and plus it was also time to give someone else a chance to take on the role that I was so lucky to have for so many years. Yeah, definitely. Because 27 years in total, like, it's a long time it, to be... It, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to rub it in. You could have retired <laughs> after 21. I could have reti- Yeah, I'm after lucky we get the pension. I could have retired after 21, but I wasn't ready. Yeah, and it would, have been, I, it would have been a mistake. I, I think you go when you're ready, but yeah. you need to prepare. No yeah, matter definitely. what you do or what you want to do, you should prepare. Don't... I've seen people leave and been instantly regretting it, yeah. um, because you know they'd had a bad day or they'd had a fall out with this person or the other. It, it's a massive decision, uh, but I will say is once you prepare yourself and once you make the decision, it's yeah. it's the transition is, is, is very very easy. Yeah, that and was there's a lot to be said for not working weekends and nights yeah. as well. <laughs> that sure is. And yeah. uh, that was my next question. Then, so how did you find the whole transition then from let's say soldier then to civilian? Um, uh, I may have been a little bit luckier because the RS is a very civilianized, if I, that's a word, organization. Um, it's it's run by uh, you know it's the civil service kind of manage the house, then you have the OPW who who manage all the, the facilities. So I worked with civilians for a lot of my career, and yeah. and, and then with, with the guardie as well. Um, so going into the civilian world. Yeah, no, I didn't find it difficult. However, I always separated my life. You know, you, you talk now about the work-life balance. Yeah. Um, most of my neighbours would never know I was in the military because I didn't come home in uniform. I remember in my days in the FCA, you'd travel on the bus in uniform <laughs> so everyone would see you. <laughs> and you know, and that's, look, yeah. we, that's, that's when you're young. So I, my work life and my home life were two very different things. Yeah. Uh, when I wasn't in the army, well, you're always a soldier. I was a civilian. I had a civilian mindset. Yeah. So when it came time to leave, yeah, I, I found I found the transition easy. I'm not going to say it is for everybody, but I was lucky. I found it quite easy. But then again, I was lucky in that I had that role to go into. Yeah. And as a role, I was already doing. So, uh, you know, it was lo- I was very much lucky. So I'd done my, my groundwork, I'd done my preparation, and I was ready to go. You're ready to go, yeah. And it's important to have that exit plan now as well, like, and yeah. not just, like, a couple of months in advance, like, uh, you know, two or three Oh, no, it's, it's not a month. Uh, I know a lot of um, um, other military organisations have kind of a 12-month strategy for you to exit. We don't, but to be fair, we're a very small organisation. Yeah. But um, it, it's, it's at least, I would think, a 12-month kind of process 
not within for the military to get you ready to leave, but for you to get yourself ready to leave. Yeah. And that could be over years. I'm a firm believer that the minute, the day you join the army, you should always be thinking of the exit. I'm not saying you want to leave, yeah. but it's an eventuality that's going to come. And in all likelihood, it'll you'll still be a young man or woman when you leave. So you should always be thinking of that next phase of your life from early on. And to, to use the army, and I don't mean that in a negative way, the army will teach you skills to their benefits and as they should, but they're also teaching you skills that you can take outside and you should start understanding them and maybe translating them into that, that civilian world. Yeah, it's it's hard, It's it can sometimes be hard for soldiers to, um, sorry I jumped. You're all right, I jumped as well. <laughs> Two ex-soldiers have jumped in the window. Oh, that's not good, that's is it? Civilian coming yeah, yeah, that's civilian yeah, yeah. We're back in the lab, back in the lab, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, that's a lot. That's t- that's a, p- a part, like I suppose, where soldiers struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, translating what they've done in the military into civilian uh, kind of wording, essentially. Yes, and, uh, and 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 to be fair, Connor, you you're more the expert on this. Obviously, this is this is your area, but soldiers don't. Yeah, we don't. I remember talking to um, the head of the, the the personal support services, absolute gentleman, and I remember he was talking about they were looking at reimagining how these pre-retirement courses, because the old ones weren't particularly great. I, I never, funny enough, I'd never done one, um, but a lot of guys did, and they got great value out of them. So one of the things that they talked about was um, when he got Dublin Business School in, I think it was Dublin Business School came in, and he said he felt that they didn't think soldiers had a lot of transferable skills. Okay. But once they interviewed a number of soldiers, he says they were in awe of it and then they actually came to conclusions the soldiers don't know they have the transferable skills but they actually do yeah. like we you know soldiers are trained in, in human resources soldiers like the, the military admins itself we have you know cyber security experts IT technicians most of us are trained in, at a fairly high level of IT yeah. we we have office we have people who work in office admin office managers we you know we're, we're designed as team players yeah. we're also designed as team leaders but sometimes people always compare, you know, we use leadership a lot, but actually more importantly, it's management. Because most, most of what we do in, you know, say an NCO or a young officer is, is management. Now, when you go into an operational role, you transition to leader. And that's actually very important that you can actually have them. But I think people sometimes talk too much about being a leader. And you don't realize in, in every organization, there might be only one leader, but you actually need a lot of good managers. Yeah. And that's actually something I think we, we, we learn. You know, um, I think effective communications, we know how to keep, you know, keep it simple, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. We know how to effectively communicate without, you know, full of waffle um, from a guy who's been waffling here for a long time, but <laughs> that's just me. But no, to be fair, we do know how to effectively communicate. Yeah. We have a very strong work ethic. Um, uh, you know, as, as I said, you know, leadership, um, teamwork, um, management, time management is actually very, very important as well. We learn how to time and we're flexible and adaptable because unlike some of the larger military organizations, the Irish soldier has to do a lot of different roles. Yeah. So he has to be flexible and also has to be very capable of adapting to new roles as well, which I think we're very good at. Yeah, we picked up and thrown into deep Anything, or something. Anything, yeah, yeah, and we, we do, we tend to do very well. Well, but yeah, I think our soldiers as well, I think they're also trying to do two jobs ahead of the actual rank that they are as well. So yes. Like, corporate probably trying to do the, rank, the job of a sergeant and a CS. Of course. Um, so you kind of step into those roles then as well if you know someone goes down, so it's, it's good that way. And then, so, now you've you've left the army. Yes. Um, you're out. You're away. IT.e now as the that's, that's, the manager full time. Yes. 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 I'm in, I'm in the big civilian world. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's it's been fantastic. Uh, and I suppose I 
around, around the time actually I went to Carlo IT, Eamon approached me and asked me would I be interested in maybe doing a little bit of work with him. Yeah. And at the time Eamon was in uh, an office in Glasnevin Business Glasnevin Industrial Estate, Dublin Business Centre, I think call it, um, with himself, uh, Margaret in accounts and two technicians. Yeah. And I was kind of coming in and maybe have some ideas about growth, uh, possibly a bit of business development, but seemed to transition more into the, the, the to the marketing side of it. And uh, he had a great vision for what he thought IT, you know, in relation to managed services, IT support should be for, for companies. And of course, it was, at, it was kind of in those days when uh, technology was exploding. We, we all look at chat GPTs and all, and this new kind of, you know, uh, destruct, destructive uh, technology. But um, IT was now becoming an essential thing. So because Eamon's kind of philosophy was IT is almost like a utility yeah the same way you can't you can't like we couldn't operate here without the lights on so we yeah. need electricity you can't operate without business without IT yeah it's just an essential utility and almost you need to come to the point that you forget it's there it's just something you use and that's why you have companies like IT.ie that provide all of your managed IT and your technology solutions so uh, yeah so I, I liked his idea of where he, he wanted his business to go uh, I was delighted when I got the opportunity to come on board. We're now a business with uh, we've thirty employees. We oh, manage over two hundred fifty clients, about ten thousand individual devices that we manage, uh, and it's a, and it's a great team. It's kind of it's it, in some ways it reminds me of the military in the sense that you've got the emergency response element where guys are responding to you know critical issues for clients, but all you've got then you've got the proactive. So it's about building a proactive um, you know IT solutions like almost like a strategy that aligns with your business growth. So it's yeah. important that an IT company not only fixes the issues, but also is proactive to hopefully prevent the issues from happening, but also to look at where your business wants to grow and you know, use your IT, use your technology to assist that growth, to empower that growth. Yeah, yeah, I actually use IT.e. One of the first point of calls when I was like starting my business, um, and Eamon, like very helpful as well. Like, yeah. uh, you think he helped me like connect the domains to the emails and to set up the website and make sure all the domains are linked. Um, so, and then David then as well, like personally delivered the laptop to me and <laughs> showed me how it all worked. Um, but they've been great. David's been over a few times, like yeah. obviously with new laptops and uh, docking stations and things like that. So the guys have been pretty helpful. Pretty good response times too. They're, they're, they're great. Um, and uh, you know, on the customer service side of things, the guys are brilliant. They understand that when people ring with a problem, it's they're looking for a solution so you, you just have to talk people through not everyone is technical some of us have different levels of, of technical expertise and uh, but no no i have to say it's 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 exciting obviously we're moving in you know you're looking at the, the area of cyber security and everyone has the fear around that yeah. so what it do they they provide i suppose it's the full 360 of of, of managed services so including you know your it support all the other managed service, 365, cyber security, uh, funny enough, the likes of the interactive screens and all that become very popular in, in, in schools. Yeah. And so we have air grow plans and it's going according to it. And I suppose a lot of people start seeing the value of IT during COVID. Of, you know, did, did we, uh, it, yeah. Almost overnight, people are panicking for, for remote working. And uh, we had actually been doing work with clients in relation to helping them assist into that hybrid working environment. So we actually crowned it quite easy. We were doing it ourselves anyway. So yeah. that was always coming, but COVID kind of accelerated. Exactly. We often talk about accelerating the digital transformation, but it's, yeah, these, we were, everyone was heading down that road. Yeah. 
but we look, COVID got, got us there a little bit quicker. As and well. you guys already had the blueprints. So. And we all, we had yeah. the blueprints, but look, we, we were very, we were set up to do it. Um, it's, uh, and it, look, it's been successful. We, we all see now uh, with recruitment, everyone's probably looking for some element of hybrid. I don't, call, I wouldn't say remote because I personally don't think full remote is, is the way forward. I do think the hybrid approach yeah. is works. I know myself, I do a hybrid approach and uh, I find it, again, I find it can be very productive at home, but at times you still need to have, you still need to be in the office. I think the, the culture of engaging with people, you know, the, yeah. the whole water cooler effect. Yeah. And I think anyone who's 100% remote, well, it may work for many people. I'm not saying it doesn't. Yeah. I personally like, I like people. So I like to actually engage with people one-to-one as opposed to yeah. just on a, a Teams call or something. Yeah, I think it's beneficial to be in the office as well, especially from like a, a mental health point of view, yeah. like just yeah. to see people. Of course. I think if you're like, I know I, try, I was working at home when I first started out, um, and jeez, it was hard, like, um, like not seeing anybody like five days a week. Um, so I was like, we're getting an office. Yeah. Um, straight away, and then we, we have a few people in. Like, but it's good. Like, it, it, the hybrid thing is definitely, it definitely works well. Um, I don't think, I think fully remote work is it's more of a privilege um, than yeah. a requirement of someone's job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, personally, but yeah, the hybrid model is working pretty well. Like, no, two I, days, I, two I, days I, at home kind of thing, three days in the office. Funny enough, it was actually COVID that kind of helped me make the decision to retire as well. Because of yeah. COVID, there was very little happening in the era. So I was kind of doing an element of remote working from, from home for, yeah. you know, office-based uh, roles in, in, in the Aris. but. I actually start doing a lot of the digital marketing. I've retired now, but I was, yeah, I was doing digital marketing on the minister's time. But um, and I just kind of fell more into that role. So that disconnect, actually. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I I always wondered that if COVID didn't happen, would I have retired when I did? And I I don't know. I was always heading in that direction, but just like it accelerated digital transformation, it certainly accelerated my maybe my time frame to yeah. to, to retire. And, um, God, sorry, God. Yeah. And digital marketing as a whole, right? As a career, let's say. Um, would you recommend it to someone maybe that's coming out of school to go into? Oh, absolutely. I think digital marketing, and, and funny enough, it's, it's it, one of my considerations when I went to do it was the whole idea of I could do it anywhere, anytime, you know, yeah. once I have a digital device. Do I reckon? Absolutely, I recommend it. I think a lot, I think a lot of uh, young people, I think they're born for it. Yeah. Like, I had to learn technology. They grow up with it. It's almost a language to them. But um, I, I, I love technology. I love digital marketing. There's many aspects of it, uh, like just the strategy. So yeah, yeah. it's all planning, it's, it's strategy, it's all looking at growth. It's all, uh, but then you have the practical element of it. You're doing the social media. Yeah, I think it's, it's it, the, the range of skills, I think regardless whether you go into you know, digital marketing, a lot of people then go on to, to brand marketing or even go, funny enough, can go into the sales and business, business development side of it. But it's a very creative, um, uh, and skill set uh, from you know you you might be building a website doing uh, doing uh, social media you're um, I do a lot of video um, um, production and editing when I say that it's it's quite template based I'm not I'm not yeah. a, an editor but I, I you learn I find now the likes of the Adobe Suite it's not something I did a course on but you you kind of get that interest yeah. and you you could, it's again it's continuous learning and then content creation and storytelling I think that's the biggest element of it yeah I think it's it, it's really telling the story so. If you're working for a brand or you're consulting for a brand, it's you're telling their story, and that's that, and that's key. So when I'm writing content for IT.e, I'm telling the story of IT.e and the people behind IT.e. And yeah. I'm, I'm trying as much as possible not to be biased. Of course, there's yeah. always an element that will come into anything, but then again, I work for them, so I'm always going to be <laughs> yeah, kind. Yeah. But no, it is. It's it's very much it's storytelling. I couldn't draw a straight line, but I can be creative when it comes to that digital side of things. It's brilliant. And then uh, the Defence Forces then as a career, 
Um, would you recommend it for someone coming out of school or let's say a school leaver even? Yes, I, I, I think I do recommend it. I, I recommend it as a career. Um, I, I'd be on the fence whether I'd say I'd recommend it as a lifelong career. Um, I think it's the experiences you get are invaluable, absolutely invaluable. I think a young man or woman joining the Defence Forces, the, 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 the bonds they will and the friendships they will make are lifelong. Yeah. Um, the, the skills they, they will learn uh, are again lifelong and very transferable. Uh, the experiences they get uh, when they're overseas and on exercises is something you just won't get anywhere else. So I do highly recommend it. Um, but then you have to, I would say, do your few years and then make your decision. Is it a career for life or are you going to you know, use it for the next phase of your life? Yeah. But um, yeah, look, I can say, uh, of course, soldiers should be paid more. Of course they should be paid yeah, more. Definitely. Absolutely no doubt about it. People undervalue the work that they do. Now, you know, you'll often ask people, you know, but what did the army really do? And, and in truth, you know, you, you don't really want to see soldiers on the streets, but they're yeah. trained for situations. But I think where we really show our worth is overseas. And I think yeah. the, 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 uh, the, the reputation for the Irish Defence Forces overseas is unparalleled. Um, and I think that stems from a lot of yeah. countries that are experiencing hardship, having an appreciation for our own the history of Ireland, and you know this the struggles the Irish people have had. So there's a great affinity, great empathy, and, and respect for for us. And also, I think that allows us to have an understanding and an empathy for the people we're there to, you know, hopefully improve the lives of. So yes, I 100% recommend it as a career. But I also think that you should always be, even if you're going to spend 20 or 30 years, always get yourself ready and use it to your advantage for your next stage of your life. Yeah, definitely. And th- I think the Defence Force themselves, I think they're, because the profile of the, the veteran, let's say, it's it's get, it's becoming younger. Yeah. Everyone, not everybody's staying for the whole 21 years or 31 years to get the pension or whatever it is um, now. But uh, they have some good courses in place. Like, so if you come in corporal, I think you get like a level six or seven, and then you go on then to become a sergeant, you get the level Eight, I think it is, and then, uh, and that's all done through. Carlos. That's actually so no, that's you recognise That's actually a very good point, and I, 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 when I did my standard NCO course, you didn't get that. Yeah, you got what's called an equivalence. So in, actually, in order for me to enter IT Carlo, I had to get the equivalence from the registrar to say you don't have the degree, but you have the equivalent of it because we didn't do it through the steps. Yeah. Whereas now, as exactly as you said, when you become a corporal, you get your level six. And I think when you become a sergeant at a level seven, seven, and then you go on as far as you know a higher, a higher degree of a level eight. So they are, yeah, they're equating that military lifelong learning to a high end degree. And I think that's and that that's then yeah, that's something I think where we've come leaps of bounds. I remember talking to an officer, Peter Ott, and uh, he's retired now, and he would have done a lot of work on that about. Um, that kind of non-officer tract in the army about actually equating their skills to the academic world and then once you have those academic skills of course you can translate them of course across to the civilian world yeah I don't know I don't know how true the story actually is but um, I, I heard that uh, it was a, a, an officer coming out of Tesco's or whatever or one of the shopping centres and he seen a, the old sergeant major sitting behind uh, the CCTV cameras and looked at him and says you know, what, what are you doing working as a security guard like you used to manage hundreds of men and he's like well this was the only job I was qualified for um, so once I think people seeing that and had the respect they had for the old sergeant major that things started to kind of move you know, yeah there is there was an old kind of thinking that 
you know, you're in the army, the only thing you'd be good at is swinging the gate doing security. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with you going to school. No, no, there's many definitely. wonderful people working that. But the point is that people didn't think they had any other skills, that we work for a security agency, that's all we can do. Yeah. Right? That's, that's changed. That's changed across the board. And thankfully, that's changed across the board. Some of the old soldiers didn't, unfortunately, get to take advantage of that whole thinking. And many of them were left behind. And thankfully, the organizations like the, you know, the O&E, do a lot of work in helping some uh, a lot of those uh, ex-soldiers and, and of course even recent retirees but I do think yeah I think that equating the skills to to that academic level I think it's invaluable for, for soldiers yeah definitely and then swinging back then to the digital marketing um, the chat GPT chat GPT you use it a lot right it's quite topical at the moment chat GPT yeah primetime actually had a, had a, a, a talk on it last night it's quite interesting look it, it's disruptive Um yeah. There's a lot of talk about regulating it, and in fact, from the the, gent, the chap who invented it, he's talking about government should regulate it, and they should. Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually, it's, I'm not get too deep, but I was reading, I'm reading a book by Professor Harari. He did Sapien, fantastic book, but he's talking about um, how mankind um, basically treats other animals. We see them as inferior, and he says because we have the higher intelligence. He says so. What happens when AI? Now, by he wrote his book in 2016. He says, what happens when AI has a superior intelligence to man? Do we get that again, then get relegated? Now, like, that's, that's, you know, that's worst case scenario. In reality, I think, I think AI, it's, it's happening, it's disruptive, yeah. and you can't stop innovation. No. Yeah, of course you should releg- re- sorry, regulate it. But I think the important thing is, and you might want to talk, because this is more your expertise in employment, but I think for anyone, I think for someone like myself in marketing, it's not that I use it to replace anything, but I sugar augment it with AI. Yeah. I think if you don't use the tool, you'll be left behind. I don't think it's going to necessarily replace lots of jobs. No. Uh, it'll change them. And I think like any technology, if you don't adapt to that technology, if you don't start finding ways of incorporating that into your processes, I think then you're in trouble. So yeah. for me, ChatGPT is a tool, just like any other tool I use. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is definitely a tool. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not. I don't think it's replacing anybody anytime soon. No. Um. In terms of the licensing of like the the AI, I think it's, you know, the guy that owns the Open AI now. He's talking about regulating it because he has it up and running, so mm. it'll probably become closed AI. <laughs> closed, yeah. Look, and it, people are going to monetize it. It's like yeah. anything else. It's like it's like Google. You ask people what Google are. Google is, and people say it's a search engine. It's not. It's an advertising agency. That's yeah. that, that, that's, that's, what what that's what it is. We all use Google Ads, and we, we pay, pay money for that. I think. Yeah, his fear obviously is that the problem with AI is, it, they call it the black box, I think they call it, whereby we, we know what goes in and we know what comes out. So you put a, a prompt in yeah. and you see what comes out. We don't know what's really happening in the black box. So all of a sudden, this has massive amounts of, da- of data. Now, bear in mind, it, it's data that's user-generated data. So it's biased and it's sometimes inaccurate. So you cannot take what comes from ChatGPT as fact. I'm not saying it's, it's going to intentionally lie to you. It probably doesn't know it is, but it is biased. So don't, uh, you know, my fear is that people use it as their main form of communication. Yeah. And it shouldn't, you, you know, we all know how to communicate. Use it to maybe, you know, help you formulate a better email or a better article or post. Yeah. In fact, it wasn't the uh, Irish Times only last week published an article and it turns out it was fake. It was generated by by, yeah, by the content the detector. detector yeah. yeah, content detector. Um, look, it can, it, it, it's, it's absolutely a great tool. Uh, it'll disrupt many... Uh, it's, it's disruptive. It's like the industrial revolution, this new AI revolution, if you want to call it that. 
it, and it's not going away. We may no. regulate it. Uh, but I don't think you can slow down. I think there, there was a time when we waited until things were ready before they released them, even with mobile phones. Now yeah. they're, they're competing. So you've got ChatGPT, which is kind of backed by Microsoft. You've Bart, which is Google and Facebook are looking at them. So it's it's almost an arms race. Um, it, we do hope that these guys will regulate it. But then on the other side of it, even if it's regulated, not every nation is going to abide by that. Like we all know what goes on in cyber warfare and information war, state sponsored. So just because here in Ireland we decide to regulate it it doesn't mean that the guy across the water is doing the same thing and that's the fear we, it's very hard to come to that universal consensus about what we should allow it to do and people will always use it for bad as much as we use it for good and yeah. you know the likes of deep fakes is a, is a worry around elections and um, you know using it influencers now are people influencers of the future are just going to be bots in fact, there is one or two bots that are already actually massively followed influencers with avatars and all that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the disinformation is the biggest fear I feel around around the chatbot. Not, I wouldn't be so fearful that it's going to take all of our jobs. Yeah. I'm more fearful that it would, you know, in some way, change society and our way of thinking because we, well, we trust. There's a certain level of trust with, say, a, you know, a journalist. I'm not saying all the time, but we generally trust the news that it's largely unbiased not entirely yeah. but now all of a sudden with all this auto-generated content and obviously you can just pretend to be somebody like we have you know I work for Michael D. Higgins and Michael D. Higgins President Higgins would release um, you know statements on different issues what's to stop an AI just releasing it under you know under the name of Michael and, and we all know with cyber security it's very easy to to uh, you know infiltrate you know someone's email or get, you know man in the middle attack and just infiltrate a conversation so yeah we're just going to have to be that little bit more careful yeah we're definitely at the tip of the iceberg with it but yeah, yeah. Well, we're at zero, we're kind of we're always talking with zero trust in cyber security and it's going to be kind of the same I think with, with AI it start trust you start with zero and then yeah. you you know you develop trust and you start you just have to do your research yeah. we just don't take anything at face value yeah especially on now yeah, yeah. the way things are moving but uh, yeah look I think that more or less wraps it up for yeah. me this was supposed to be a five minute call, wasn't it? Yeah. Ten to five minutes yeah. chat and we're, we're at fifty eight minutes. Fifty eight minutes. It's the longest one so far. Yeah, I used to I used to, used to I used to get I used to get in trouble in the, the RS, I used to have to give a tour. It's supposed to be forty five minutes and two and a half hours later and the chef used to go, Please, please stop. I have the food ready for these people. But look look, it's been it's been a, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed I really have enjoyed chatting with you, Connor. Yeah. It's great to see you're doing well and I you know, it's great to see uh, your business. I'm lucky enough I didn't have to reach out to you for, for work, but yeah. if I upset Damon and he gets rid of me maybe I will be reaching out at some point yeah. but look no it's great I think it's a I think what you do and I think the idea of the podcast of talking to ex-members of the organisation I think is a is fantastic. I think people are interested. Not necessarily listen to me. By the way, this is a deep fake. I'm not here. <laughs> but I think do think people actually are, you know are interested in knowing that the the skills that the soldier learns and how they can they can transfer them to the civilian world. And like for anyone who's ever considering looking uh, you know looking uh, you know at filling roles I think the soldier is someone you should 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 always look at because they have they've already they're already built for you you know yeah. the army has done that they've given them the work ethic they've given them you know the skills to to do almost any role that you have for them yeah. you just have to give them a chance that's all yeah a chance on a bit of a creative license yeah them. yeah not, absolutely not yeah. micromanage them I suppose cause no no we don't like the micromanagers yeah. do we we yeah, don't no no definitely not no I didn't do well with them when I left now but uh we got around then everyone learned yeah, it, it takes a while away for different organisations it's completely different to when you hire someone hiring like a a normal person like or a regular yeah. civilian off the street 
the way they need to be managed to the way a soldier, uh, an ex-soldier coming into your organisation needs to be managed is completely different. And they're also yeah. a benefit to your to your team. Yeah. Because they're, most companies are trying to build a team, they're trying to build a culture. And I think when you employ members of the Defence Forces, they can help you build that culture because they've come from a, a, an organisation that, that largely has a very positive culture, regardless of what you may read and different things. I think Defence Forces and the people in it are, you know, have a good, good culture. And I think they, they, are, they have, an, above their actual skills, I think they are, are great to have as part of your team. Yeah. Whether it be leading the team or part of the team, it's fantastic to have a member of Defence Forces. And I think in the US in particular, they, they see that, they, they, they've done a lot of work on that, and they can see the value. There's companies who actively go out and look for, because they see the value. And they're not doing it because they're trying to hire veterans. They're yeah. doing it for their own means. They're, like, if you hire someone, you're gonna hire someone that you think is gonna benefit your company. Yeah. So why not get someone that's already got the skills and you know, you're know not waiting for them to finish the degree, not say, taking away from anyone who's, who's out there doing training. Yeah. But I do think a member of the Defence Force, regardless of what role they had is, is a valuable asset to, to almost any company. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think, something that like uh, companies need to look at, especially because we have like so many like American multinationals in mm. Ireland, is looking at like the veteran programme for yeah. the Irish troops um, or even like the UK troops because I know there's not too many companies that have like different veteran programs no. um, compared to like the US like if you look yeah. on the same website um, for a company that's based in Ireland for a company and the same company will have a US um, base they'll have a veterans program on their US website but not on their that's, Irish that's very true um, there's a um, there's a, I think is it there's a couple of the companies I've seen a couple of ex army guys are working with some of the big uh, tech companies and in yeah, fairness they're, they're implementing um, they're they're implementing these kind of veteran programs for more in it because obviously they're getting support from their American multinational yeah. and they're doing a great deal of work for in trying to encourage Irish veterans to join it. But I, I agree. I think the US, the big multinationals have those programs in place, but the Irish companies don't. No. And that's I think I think they're 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 missing an opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Another thing is that like you're you when you hire an Irish vet, let's say you're going to get them at a cheaper rate. Um, to like market rate let's say for the civilian now that's also an issue then as well because you know two or three years time once they get that work experience in the civilian world under the belt then you know they're on to the highest bidder I suppose once they get the you know the experience under the belt so yeah, you have yeah. to kind of you have to you do have to keep them engaged and kind of make sure that the rewards package is in line with the market then as well absolutely and you're talking about keeping them engaged they've been in an organization where they've been constantly engaged yeah. so that, that is very important and they, they absolutely should be compensated appropriately you're not just get, you're not looking for uh, you know it's, it's not cheap labor no you're, you're taking a high highly skilled person with you know anything from you know five to 30 years experience in in a in a, in a quite a high pressure environment yeah. and you're taking them in they are an, an asset to you and you should uh, nurture it yeah definitely no it's a uh, it's definitely a, a tricky one now but it, we'll see how we'll see how this progresses right over the next yeah. kind of i think we've got 10 people confirmed to come on like they're all ex-army and then we might get some companies on then as well yeah we yeah talk about the, the they're actually interesting the getting the yeah. companies and and to understand because obviously in military we understand our mindset, but it'd be interesting to understand what these companies, yeah, what they, what they how they value it, yeah. Because when, as I said to you at that time, when Dublin Business School came in, they initially um, expected not to value it, if, if that's the right way of saying it. Not, to, not I'm not saying the people themselves. It's just yeah. they didn't understand because they hadn't engaged with the military, yeah. and there they were almost shocked by the level of skill that members of defence forces have. It's quite a close shot though, Zara, right? We're quite 
cloak and dagger, I suppose, when it comes to like what happens inside the gates of a barracks or yeah, well, whatever. But and again, just, that, that's also it. that's also an asset. You yeah. know, you 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 hire someone, you you want someone that you know you can trust. Yeah, we don't go, we we tell our stories and, and we do all that, but yeah. we are trusted because we are trusted with information and that we we simply can't share. Obviously, I worked in the arts for many years. There's many things I would be trusted with which I would never share, and yeah. I, I you know take pride in the fact that I wouldn't share that. Um, but same with soldiers, you know, we're, we're given, I suppose, uh, a level of, you know, security clearance, if you want to say, or knowledge that we don't share. So if you take someone into the corporate world, corporate espionage is a massive thing. So yeah. you, you want to take someone in that you can trust. And again, ex-members are some, someone that they, they, that's ingrained into them. Yeah, definitely. They're not going to throw you under the bus because they're not built that way. Yeah, it depends. But uh, yeah, thanks very much for coming. Not on. at all. My pleasure. pleasure. Thanks very much. Not at all.